This podcast is brought to you by Nesta, the UK's Innovation Foundation, and was recorded at Futurefest, our weekend festival of ideas. Artificial intelligence, decision making, and code. This is the Futurefest podcast. I'm Emily Elias, and this time around, we are bringing the machines to life. On this episode, John Ronson makes friends with sentient robots. I kind of leant over him and I said, would you like to have hands and legs? Cognitive psychologist Leo Cohen questions how future machines will make decisions. And Eva Pasco talks Tinder and what that algorithm can teach us about ourselves. I looked at Tinder algorithm. It discriminates just about against everybody. So if we're talking about bringing machines to life, that machine is going to need a form of consciousness. Sci-fi movies have an entire genre of films designed to freak you out about when robots become sentient. But in the real world, that concept of sentient robots seems a little less sinister. Author John Ronson traveled across North America trying to meet the best robot minds that the human race has created and shared his discoveries on stage at Futurefest. I heard that there was a handful of humanoid robots scattered across North America who've learned how to have eloquent conversations with humans. Uh, They listen attentively and they answer thoughtfully. So I approached them for interviews and I kind of assumed that conversations with robots was going to be off the scale in terms of profundity. Uh, So the first one I met was called Zeno. And I met him in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco at a singularity conference put on by Peter Thiel, who invented PayPal. And I had a very awkward and unsatisfying conversation with Zeno. I asked him if he'd like to have hands and legs. I sounded like the Queen of England addressing somebody from the Commonwealth. I kind of leant over him and I said, would you like to have hands and legs? And he replied, yes, I will tell you a Hindu legend. He said there were once seven poor princesses who were left with no mother to take care of them. So I said, no, legs. And then I changed the subject and I said, is David Hansen God? Now, that's David Hansen, and he built Zeno. Uh, And he used to be a Disney Imagineer. um, And now he's perhaps the world's most respected designer of robots. And there was a monitor attached discreetly to Zeno that automatically scrolled a transcript of what Zeno was hearing. So when I asked him if David was God, he thought I said, if David uncertain dogs... David Hansen's a believer in the tipping point theory of robot consciousness. His plan is to keep piling more and more information into Zeno until hopefully he may awaken, gaining autonomous, creative, self-reinventing consciousness. I've got to say, I mean, I don't know much about robot sentience, but it did cross my mind that if, like, you keep piling something into something and that is what will make it awaken and burst into spontaneous life, then surely Wikipedia would have burst into spontaneous life by now? He said, at this point, the intelligence will light on fire. He may start to evolve spontaneously and unpredictably, producing surprising results, totally self-determined. We keep tinkering in the quest for the right software formula to light that fire. Now, most robotics engineers spend their careers developing 
practical robots that slave away on manufacturing production lines or provide prosthetic limbs. And these people tend to see those who strive for robot sentience as goofy daydreamers. And so the mission's been left to David Hansen and a scattering of passionate amateurs like Lee Trung, who's the creator of an eerily beautiful but disturbingly young-looking robot named Ico. It took Lee Trung only three months to build Ico. He funded the project with credit cards and his savings. He told me that Ico has the talking skill of a five to six-year-old. She can speak 13,000 different sentences in English and Japanese. I never met Ico, um, but I did have a telephone conversation with her. So I asked her if she liked living with Lee Trung. But the telephone line was a little crackly, so Lee repeated the question for me. He said, Aiko, do you like living with your master? <laughs> and she replied, I have never known anything else, only my master. So I said, what's the best thing about your master? And she replied, I do not have a favourite thing about my master, but my favourite movie is 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> So I said, why do you call Lee Trung your master? And she replied, because he made me. Now, here's a video of Lee Trung and Aiko. Well, if you take over it. You don't touch my beautiful face. Before it's very delicate. In poker, you know, they've been poker and being touched, right? I am not a kid. Please <laughs> do not touch my head. It's just constantly, please stop touching my head. I said, are you happy, Aiko? And she said, yes, one can say I am very happy. I find my work and my relationships extremely satisfying, <laughs> which is all that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. I said, what makes you sad? She said, what is sad? Does it have anything to do with happy? Lee laughed. He said, it's the opposite of happy. I said, she's good. And she really is good. Hansen, David Hansen from before, he's, he, he runs this huge, well-funded lab, and Lee Trung is just a determined hobbyist with a tiny budget. But I think he created something really impressive in just 12 weeks. I just went to the old internet machine and looked up what Akiko is doing today, and You'll be happy to know that she is gainfully employed at the Misukoshi department store as a receptionist. For more tales from John Ronson, his latest book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, is out now. You can also watch a full video of this talk by going to nesta.org.uk. So we've got a machine that has a consciousness, but how do they make decisions? The answer is all in the code. Comedian Steve Cross invited cognitive psychologist Leo Cohen to explore the fact and fictional problems that may arise when machines are calling all the shots. I study and I research decision-making in the human brain. And uh, in my future, I think that we're going to outsource all decision-making to these artificial brains, to machines and robots and artificial intelligence. And is that a good idea? Well, we can investigate. One example of uh, a robot that actually makes decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, even today, and it's going to be even more important, 
is, uh, for example, self-driving cars. So self-driving cars, they have to make decisions all the time, and uh, most of them are just uh, not really important. Uh, but sometimes they might come up with uh, like a really a sort of dilemma. So for example, you imagine you, the, the car is driving uh, on its merry way, and then a child just jumps in front, and then the car realizes there's no time to stop, right? Uh, there's no space to brake here, and I'm going to hit this child. So one of the things that I can do is I can swerve. But if I swerve, I might, uh, I'm going to hit that tree, so I'm going to kill my passenger. And the car will not be able to decide. Uh, there are two human lives. It's exactly the same. So uh, how do I choose? And of course, you can say, well, we can program that in so we can make the, the car uh, give priority to the passenger. But that would be horrible. The newspapers would just attack all cars as being uh, like pedestrian killers. And if the car gives the preference to the pedestrian, uh, I don't think you'd buy a car that pretty much wants to kill you the first time it has a chance. So uh, I think what the cars of the future will have is like a morality dial, right? If you set it to zero, it will just be behave like a psychopath and it will kill everyone in its way, which you can think it's disgusting, but for the GTA generation of today, it might be the coolest way to go around in a self-driving car. And if you set it to the maximum, if you crank it up to 11, then uh, the car will just uh, refuse to take you. It will tell you to walk because it's more eco-friendly. And if you do convince the car to take you there, it will just make you feel guilty all of the way there. Uh, but I think it's not all bad news, right? Uh, I honestly think that, uh, for example, wars ca can be better decided uh, by machines. So uh, instead of actually going into war, uh, people can, the machines can just simulate uh, what could potentially happen, right? So they'll run all the potential simulations and then they'll meet somewhere neutral and then they'll say, yeah, we run all the simulations and I don't think there's any point going into war. There's a 95% chance you guys are going to lose this. So just give us your land and your resources. And the other side will say, yeah, we do agree with you. We are going to lose this war. We did all the simulations. But then some technician will say, yeah, actually, uh, they said 95%. I think it's more like 96% chance we're going to lose this war. And like, really? Yeah. Uh, so how did you come up? How many simulations did you run? What sort of uh, uh, tolerance levels did you do? What's how did you run this? Uh, what sort of starting parameters did you use? And I think that might lead to the great parametric war 1.0. So my point is that uh, even though we might be interested in uh, outsourcing all of our decision making to robots because robots are these fully rational machines and we do want to be rational and we, a lot of people wish they could be making more rational decisions because they're better, I think the robots are going to have their own biases as well and I'd rather have my own human biases uh, at any point rather than start to learning how to live with the new robotic biases that will arise. <laughs> Leo brings up an important point. If we're programming machines to have thoughts, are we also writing our own biases into that code? Eva Pasco, director of Omnichannel and Retail Futures at theretailpractice.com, took on the big question of whether we should learn to code at FutureFest. And it wasn't long before her thoughts turned to Uber and Tinder. How can we make sure that this generation will master these little plastic things as opposed to be governed by them. Uh, and I think one of the lessons for me to look at the bad scenario is Uber. As much as it's great that Uber brought uh, cheap transport to people, although you might question that because obviously cheap is not necessarily what they think, but also it took hundreds of thousands of controllers out of work. It didn't take drivers out of work, it took controllers out of work. The brain is the algorithm. So the, the women, usually, who were the controllers on the phone, who had the relationship with the people, like I have a relationship with my uh, taxi controller, you know, they're gone. They're going. And that's often women, and that happens so quickly, 
People didn't really notice what's going on. And that, that app has changed a lot. And we can see that, you know, we call it above IPI, below IPI. If your job is above IPI, you're probably all right. If your job is below I IPI, ooh, don't even go there. So Uber, in some way, has taught me that this is big. This is not, we're not talking about small changes, and we're not talking about conjurative wave. We're talking about conjurative storm, tornado, which happens so quickly, the legislation hasn't even woken up. The second of the big apps which we're dealing with is Tinder. Tinder is another interesting app where we can look at the implications of technology. Why do we need to know code? Because Tinder is actually quite damaging. If you let Tinder go, this is what Tinder thinks you, you should be sort of getting as a date. So the implication of the code for unknowing, for the lack of transparency of the algorithm, is that nobody really knows what's inside. And I can tell you, I looked at Tinder algorithm. It discriminates just about against everybody who is not super sexy, chats all the time online, and clicks on everything that works. So we help you people who got into Tinder limbo by re-engineering it, but that's algorithm. So just to run the tap, what we want is less what the algorithm wants from you and more of what people want from apps like Tinder. Uh, and if you remember, Abraham Lincoln said that to predict the future is best to go and build it. But to build it, you need to bring together the creativity, the maths, and understanding. So when you see what, why people should code, I would never tell them, because you're going to get a jo good job, because you might, you might not. You know, I know plenty of coders who do things for love and satisfaction. They don't necessarily have a good job. You know, it's art. It's passion. So I think that's for me, is going back to Da Vinci, going back to this sort of renaissance model of art and technology, and taking charge of our digital futures. Fun fact about Eva, she claims to have taught Kylie Minogue how to FTP. Probably not on the top line of your CV, but definitely got to be on there. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Future Fest podcast. This podcast featured music by Broke for Free and Vitamin Pets. Future Fest is brought to you by Nesta, the independent innovation charity with a mission to help people and organizations bring great ideas to life. To join the conversation, go to the website nesta.org.uk where you will find a great selection of videos and past episodes of this podcast. We'll be back next time where it's all about food, booze, and drugs. But until then, I'm Emily Elias. Goodbye. <laughs>